like long-term users and they were a little bit worse than the one-time users but but not that's like if you do it the one time you might as well do it like every week uh so the advice is if you already done ecstasy go ahead machiavelli was a diplomat machiavelli's politics granddad machiavelli from italy came but machiavelli things were never lame machiavelli we made you a show it's the machiavelli podcast so let's go okay um hello dear machiavellians uh, my name is Derek rosema and i am the uh, education coordinator of machiavelli today's podcast has been organized uh, with the idea in mind that studying in these times is uh, difficult, more difficult and challenging than ever before. Not only because it's hard to find the motivation to study or because it's easy to get distracted while being at home, but also because it's harder to properly learn since we do not have physical education, which would attribute to our um, ability to effectively study. So today we are joined by uh, Professor uh, Jaap Mudde, expert in brain and cognition, uh, and also employed at the University of Amsterdam. Uh, and today with Professor Murder, we will uh, discover the topics such as uh, useful study tips, uh, how memory works, um, also the effect of drugs on your memory, uh, and much more topics. Um, but without further ado, welcome, uh, Professor Murder. Mm -hmm. okay. um, how are you? I am fine, thank you. Um, first of all, um, we were wondering for our listeners, um, could you maybe explain who you are? Uh, what do you do? So my official title is... Um Professor of Theoretical Neuropsychology. Then I'm also at the moment uh, head of the um, Brain and Cognition Group. And basically it's a whole bunch of people in psychology who, who study the relationship between behavior and, uh, and the brain. And also find regularities in behavior uh, as such. Yeah, and you also uh, already mentioned the term uh, cognitive, cognition. You are also an expert on brain and cognition. Could you maybe explain what cognition is? Well, cognition, as, as we use it in psychology nowadays, and, and also cognitive therapy, uh, really is all about seeing the brain as, uh, uh, and also humans, primarily in terms of like how we process information. So thinking, but also then forgetting, uh, and many other aspects of behavior, decision-making, uh, you can you can view them in many different ways, uh, but but the the cognitive view is that we'll first of all look at it as a form of information processing, uh, and that colors of course your view a lot, um, but it has been very successful in the in the past few decades. So uh, so for example, if you th talk about memory, uh, then you think okay, well it was storing something, which is of course an information view, and then when it's stored stuff happens to it and then some of these elements disappear somehow that's we call that forgetting and then at some point i'm asked the question and i have to sort of like go into my brain somehow and retrieve that answer that that goes with that and again that's also sort of a, an information search process so all of these are very much geared towards information processing. And of course, this has been very much influenced by the development of the computer. So people looking in the 40s and 50s like, hey, computers are very much like brains. And that then influenced psychology a lot. Um, okay, uh, so now I want to move into um, the study side. Uh, and we were wondering if you have any study tips for students in general. Obviously, we get a lot of tips um, through our, through our education in general, such as when you take notes, don't do it on a laptop, do it on paper. But do you have any other uh, study tips for our students? Yeah, I have a lot of tips. <laughs> um, so the, 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 one of the things that people often 
um, don't realize is that to just summarize it in like two words struggle is good so if you have difficult material that you do not immediately understand and you struggle with it for a while and eventually figure it out then you learn way way more and you will remember it much better than when you very quickly get to the answer so somehow that struggle process um, activates your brain and also all kinds of uh, you, you develop different ways into the material. This may sound weird, but, but that's, that's one of the things. And another very important thing is that um, it's much better to spread the learning episodes in, in shorter uh, periods over a longer time. So rather than spend an afternoon uh, studying, say, your politicology uh, textbook, study like one hour at each day. Uh, and a lot of people, when they do that, they, they find like, okay, but well, I only studied for, for a few, like one hour. I don't feel I know it yet. And so do you have this feeling it's like un, uh, unfinished and, and easy because mm -hmm. you're quitting already. Uh, but, but when you look at the research, which is overwhelming and, and highly replicable, uh, you've had a much larger learning benefit if you spread it out. Spaced learning, we call this. And is this because of when you learn for one hour contrary to four hours that you have more, let's say, focus on this smaller amount of information? Yeah, so there are several processes that are at work here. But one of the things is that brain doesn't so much get fatigued and tired, but the, the, the brain at some point just sort of gets used to the materials and, and starts uh, making uh, less of the neurotransmitters that you need to store information. Uh, and, and there are many of those that are involved. Dopamine is well known, um, but you know, there, there are several others. Um, whereas if you, if you spread that four hour session over four days, the, the brain, first of all, said that the, the second day, you have to sort of get, get into it again. And that's, that seems like wasted effort, but actually you're creating new inroads into your own uh, material. So I always say the best moment, if you have like simple material, like learning words or, or concepts, the best moment to start the, the next session uh, is when you can still just remember everything with some effort. Okay, so yeah. If you do it too quickly, you don't need effort. And, and it's like, okay, I know it. If you wait too long, you have forgotten so so much that you have to basically relearn it again. And again, that's also counterproductive. Do you have any other study tips for students in general? One of the things I already mentioned is creativity. So mm -hmm. when you have somewhat simpler materials, but you still have to learn them, like the meaning of, of concepts or words or, or other um, more, say, road learning stuff, or if you study a language, merely just repeating the material uh, is, 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 is good. Repetition is definitely good, but it's even mm -hmm. better if you do something creative with it rather than just saying a difficult name that you nonetheless have to know several times, try to like break it into little bits and, and make it into a little scene or something or uh, do something funny with rhymes or try to picture a man or woman who may be called that for some reason um, okay. You know, like they have a cane and there's a word cane somewhere in the name, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it sounds silly uh, and it only has to work for you. And if you if it pops into your mind as the first thing, it's usually a, okay. enough. 
sufficient uh, sufficiently. And this really works. That has been tested uh, extensively yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and replicated many times. And the effect's not small. It's a big effect. Okay. So also trying to create, oh, I have no clue how to call this in English, Ezelbruggetjes? Yes. <laughs> donkey bridges? <laughs> not They're sure. not donkey bridges. They are, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll pop back into my mind in a minute. But anyway, that, that, so those are indeed um, like like little constructions that you make for yourself, and it's and it's better if you make them yourself than when you use existing ones. And unless they're like really well established and stuff, then you might as well use them. But uh, okay, yeah. And there's a, a, another important aspect that's completely separate from this, and that is how to access your material. So once you go to say uh, an exam, or if you are in a sort of conversational situation where you have to advise somebody uh, you often know the stuff but you can't quite access it right now because especially if it's like lists of things that have no clear structure then it's very important that you impose structure on them and uh, one of the things that has been used since the Greeks is to place concepts or words in a, in a, in a space like uh, a house What I often use for demonstrations is is my route from uh, uh, house my house to to work, and along that route you have to first uh, create certain decide where you put certain certain things because if you if you don't decide that beforehand then later you you forgot actually where you put them right that's that's so that's the way it works so for 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 example my first stop and this is from way back is when I took the bus and it would be the the bus stop. Uh, but before, I had two other stops. I had the neighbor who was always working on his uh, garage door, uh, say, in, in my in my mind. And I would have a little conversation with him. So the first concept I would hand over to him. And then there were like some children playing and they were sometimes selling things with a little table. So that would be my second stop. So in this way, I can put all these things um, along the route. And it's like magic, you, you, especially if you do, again, something slightly creative with that or make it uh, involve your other senses, like hearing or feeling or stepping into something. Um, within a very short time, I, I can like remember 20 different words, random words that are given, say, by the students in the audience. Uh, so I've done that several times. And that's really a good, a good way. But it's kind of um, a mnemonic technique you only need when you have like a really a list that you somehow have to know by heart as yeah. for example it was used for speeches a lot when people you know wanted to appear very fluent and, and natural not using paper or anything uh, and that works really well okay and then i <laughs> i envision those uh, people giving speeches uh, while they're actually doing the speeches going through the route in their in their head and then uh, having a very slow story but maybe it does not work that way um, it does remind me of, of another question I wanted to ask because um, I have heard of a trick a long time ago um, about creating a memory palace uh, so that you envision your own home or a place that's very familiar to you, like your route, um, and where you place certain words, as you said, certain codes, uh, stuff like that in different places in your imaginary house, so to say. I always thought that was a bit of a not a very effective way but is this an actual practice that people yeah use? this is something that has that was used a lot in the medieval times oh really uh, okay it's an old technique because in the medieval times uh 
they could write, of course, especially if you if you were a monk. But it was very difficult and expensive. Um, so a lot of things were transferred via memory. And they actually had like whole books written about like how to optimize your own memory already in like 1300s. <laughs> and one of these methods was indeed the memory palace or memory building. And people went as far as to actually create like build physical uh, models of these things sometimes. And, and they had like like ingenious rooms where they could store such a touch uh, type memories and others like that. And they often use that to store uh, like like specific knowledge about, say, the stars and, and, and things like that. Or also the scriptures, like the Bible. Like the method I just said, like of the, the little, uh, the road to work, say, that you can learn that in an hour. But building a memory palace and using it, it requires quite a bit of a skill that you have to develop. Okay. So that's um, <clears throat> not per se. Do, do you recommend it for, for our students to use that? You can try it for yourself. Just use your own house, or say, and, and, and if you have like a, a whole bunch of stuff to memorize, put it in different rooms. And, and again, you have to do something creative with it. Just putting, say, a certain concept in a chair doesn't really work. You have to sort of make it relate to that chair somehow. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that makes it a little more tricky. Can you compare it to, because often memory is compared to um, having these roads or paths leading to your memory uh, that are maybe a bit um, shrouded with bushes or something uh, like that. So if you try to do something creative with it, maybe you can um, decorate this, this path, which makes it easier to uh, reach your memory so to say is that a, a good analogy or definitely is a good analogy and also you can think of it as creating different paths from different areas because you now come to the same memory via a different entrance okay, and the yeah. chance that you find an entrance any entrance is larger if you have many uh, also yeah. that that idea of of like trying to remember something when you almost f forgotten it also tends to create new paths because now you suddenly come at it from a slightly different angle and the next time you, you now have two paths with which you can approach your memory and maybe if you do it again you have three different paths so it becomes progressively easy to um to, to get to it so these paths to your memories if you do not maintain them will they gradually fade out or is that not uh, yeah two things they will they will simply fade and disappear and but also you will uh have trouble finding them so so when you are like four weeks uh, further the paths are still there but you first need sort of to get back to the entrance to the park basically i think we have to move back to the to the question so do you have any um study tips for students specifically in COVID times and then considering being distracted considering being locked up in a room for a long time apart from all the things that we already said the the they mm -hmm. did some uh, research into like taking breaks um, because, you know, I, same with me, I'm, I'm sitting in like several Zoom sessions in, in a row sometimes. Uh, and of course, students have Zoom lectures, uh, but there are breaks. And then they had like, they did some research and then one group took a walk and the other group was just sitting on the couch, you know, playing on the, on their computers uh, or, or probably cell phone. And, um, and the, the people who took a walk even was even was like 10 15 minutes had much better performance after that uh, also when they objectively tested that not not just like uh, they actually had them do like some psychological tests 
and they scored much better than the ones who, who felt just as rested after sitting and you know doing nothing basically but the actual uh, physical exercise of, of just moving around a little bit outside has a huge positive effect they also felt better so that that's that's definitely something everybody can do just take the time and put on your coat and go outside for 15 minutes and you'll feel a lot better okay so it's really about doing something physical and not per se being outside is that correct well they, they didn't they didn't distinguish between that maybe just doing like some exercises might have the same effect it's probably okay. just being yeah. physical yeah or exercise yeah getting your body moving yeah okay um so now we move to the next question and that is how uh, short-term memory relates to long-term memory um, and then especially considering uh, learning new things. Okay, so short-term memory for a, a memory psychologist is, is really very short. That's, that's the memory uh, you use when you hold um, a phone number in, in your um, memory and which you do by constantly like activating it and reactivating, like rehearsing it in your mind. That's short-term memory and that's very limited. It's like about two seconds worth of what you can sort of say to yourself. Then that's like a seven digit number or like two or three foreign sounding words, that kind of thing, or a difficult name. Okay. And then long-term memory is everything basically past that. So, so once you know something after one or two minutes uh, without having rehearsed it actively all that time, uh, that's already in your long-term memory and can in, in principle stay there for, uh, for, for years already. Okay. Anything that, that you can consciously remember uh, has been in short-term memory, has had uh, your uh, attention, and you have been conscious of it. You, you can't consciously remember something later that you were not conscious of at, at that time when you learned it. If we talk a bit more specific, is this our short-term memory and long-term memory, memory located in the same part of the brain? Uh, no. Is it comparable to each other? No. Like that? Do we know quite a bit about this? So short-term memory is distributed over large portions of the brain, but, but in a very important center for that is in, in your uh, frontal cortex. So if you, if you point, I'm not pointing at, at the area sort of above my left eye, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> a few centimeters above, and if you go inside, there, there is an area uh, which you call area 46, nothing to do with area 51. And, uh, <laughs> and that's, that's what you see uh, light up in, in the scanner if people do that thing that I just said, trying to like hold a, a, like six, seven digits in mind. However, there's another area that takes care of long-term memory. It's called the hippocampus. And that's located on the sort of the inside of your brain. If you go uh, in your, uh, like underneath your ears, and if you go inside like a few centimeters, you have one on the okay. left side and on the right side. It, it looks a little bit like a seahorse when you cut it through. That's why it's called hippocampus. Uh, and if you don't have a hippocampus, uh, you will not ever uh, make new memories again. So it's, okay. it's crucial to have that. And people who lose their hippocampus or the function of the hippocampus, they, they, is what we, they become amnesic. It's, it's also what causes the amnesia in um, uh, dementia. Okay. Um, and still talking about memory, uh, how does sleep come into play with memory? So, okay, we, we just talked about the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. And so what uh, scientists have discovered in the past two, three decades is that during sleep, 
and this is the research done primarily in rats, um, you see that if the rat learns something new, uh, and they can see then certain uh, neurons, certain nerve cells light up in a certain sequence while they're learning it, right? And then the, uh, when the rat goes into deep sleep, you see the same neurons light up in the same sequence. So okay. they've, they're replaying that memory inside their um, brain. And uh, it's believed that this is crucial uh, for the consolidation of memories into long-term memory. And so there's a lot of research that if you, if you manipulate sleep, also in humans, by either have people take naps at, at strategic moments or like not sleeping uh, at certain moments, you can influence the memory that, that results from learning session a lot. You can either improve it or you can like almost wipe it out. So there's the sleep is very important for, uh, for memory. So if you learn okay. something new and then you go to sleep, the, the sleep time will sort of finish that memory that you, you started during the day. It will like, I'm not sure if it's the correct word, consolidate it in place. Yeah, it's just consolidate means make it stronger and, and less vulnerable to forgetting. And also yeah. make okay. it sort of rounder and more general, sort of, sort of fills okay. in the gaps also a little bit. Yeah, okay. Um, and is there also a distinction between learning something and then going directly to sleep or learning something in the, in the morning or in the afternoon and then later going to sleep? Um, as far as I know, that doesn't really matter all that much. So if you learn it in, in the morning and then you went to sleep at night or you learn it in the afternoon, you went to sleep at night, should have the same effect. A lot of people, especially people who are, you know, morning, morning types, uh, learn uh, better in the morning and so they will have more learning effects from that uh, okay. yeah a lot of people almost everybody shows well not everybody but many people show like a different learning effect depending on the time of day yeah. it's kind of important okay. to know that for yourself I, I am a late person really late so i learn uh I, even at 10 o'clock at night is a good time for me but morning is okay. like i wanted to say something else about memory because we talked about long and short term memory, but another forgot. distinction is uh, what we call explicit and implicit memory. So mm -hmm. when you learn something consciously uh, by studying it and re repeating it for yourself and working with it, or if you just are at a party and you, and you meet people, I mean, that's all in your consciousness. Uh, and that ends up in your memory that you can then later consciously access. We call that episodic memory. So I come back to that party or that book that I studied, and then I think, okay, I remember this. And it will pop back into my mind. So. But there's also another type of memory, which is called implicit memory. And that's um, things you learn without paying attention to them, without being conscious of them. Uh, and and uh, those memories you cannot access later consciously. That means that... Um, you cannot go back and think about those moments because you were never conscious of them in the first place. However, they can mm -hmm. influence your behavior a lot. And so this is something that is usually not well known, um, except to memory psychology. So that means that everything you do and everything you see leaves sort of a weak uh, imprint on your brain. It sort of strengthens the connections just a little bit and tweaks things. Mm -hmm. But then once you're in a sort of choice situation, you may very well be uh, steered by those unconscious memories and, and choose, say, 
product A over product B, for example, okay. or candidate yeah. A over product B, uh, candidate B. Uh, and, and so this is, it was an interesting um, uh, work in political psychology where they asked a lot of people about their um, explicit feelings about a certain political candidate and, and also others, of course. And then they did it again a long time later, and this was a local politician. And they also, of course, like ask people, do you like this person? And interestingly enough, the conscious knowledge of that person had faded but the subconscious or implicit knowledge was still in place and they still liked the person just as much, but they couldn't really remember why. So, so you see a dissociation, like, a, like they have two different types of memory that sort of um, exist independently of each other. Okay, and, and these unconscious memories can also not be um, evoked when somebody reminds you of them? No. That you've suddenly, oh yeah, I still remember now. Okay. No, sometimes... Conscious memories also have an unconscious part, like like what I just said with these ca political candidates. And then maybe in that case, you can remind people, uh, but then it had been conscious in the first place and it was just okay. forgotten. We are influenced all the time by everything that we do. And a lot of it is unconscious, yeah. but nevertheless affects our behavior. Mm -hmm. um, you already talked a bit about the political aspect. And since we're a study association for, for association for political scientists, uh, I thought it might also be nice to talk about this topic. And that is, if you know if there's any linkage between political affiliation or certain political patterns uh, with special formations of the brain. Uh, for example, I've read a book by uh, Dick Swab, and he talked about the uh, amygdala and the impact of that and the prefrontal cortex. For example, does a progressive person have a larger prefrontal cortex or does a conservative person have a larger amygdala? Yeah, I've seen, I, I know that study. Uh, uh, and I don't know whether it has ever been replicated. So the idea is that a conservative would have a bigger sort of amygdala, which is the fear area. So they, they, they exhibit more fear and, and tend to vote therefore more conservative to sort of go back to the safe area they know in, in their life, say. And many of these conservative programs, if you would actually do everything they say, we back in the you know the nineteen sixties or something, mm -hmm. uh, and and yes, that was found. I don't know whether it replicates. I would be surprised if it doesn't, because things are usually not that simple. Uh, and I've seen several other results, but in my view, they are in need of further replication to 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 really jump to conclusions there. And this one, I don't know. Maybe it has been replicated. It's not my area of expertise. Uh, and then that would definitely be interesting, I think. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, so the next question is, if there is a way to keep your brain healthy, and is there something um, you can specifically do to keep your brain in shape, or does the brain take care of itself? For example, my, my mother used to play um, a lot of brain game games on the Nintendo DS to try to keep her brain in shape. Is that nonsense? Unfortunately, yes. We, we were very much inspired by all the brain training that came out like uh, 10 years ago, including the Nintendo. We thought it was great. And we thought it might be a good therapy for people who've had a stroke or uh, older people who want to keep their brain in shape. So we, we did a very large study with professional uh, brain games uh, online. And we sort of had people uh, do these games almost every day for at least half an hour for two months. And we tested them with a lot of tests before and after. 
we also had people and we told those like well we're full right now but you can start in a little bit and we also tested those before and then after waiting for two months and not doing anything specific and uh, what we found is, is that people increased a little bit on, uh, on on the tests but the people who did nothing also increased a little bit on the tests and the the, the, the final uh, conclusion that we drew is that there was no effect of the brain training uh, games. So that was very disappointing for us and we ha hadn't expected that because we thought, okay, we have a nice method to help people, you know, uh, rehabilitate from stroke and do something extra to, to boost their brain. So I'm not saying it's detrimental, it's not bad. And if you like it, by all means do it, but, but it's not a magic bullet to really, uh, it's not like working out in the gym for your body. That, that has a big effect, but this, eh. I always say people, uh, and that, that's also um, backed up by evidence from studies, that it's even better to just have social contact for an hour than to do brain training for an hour. Just talking to people, even gossiping, you know, whatever. Uh, it has also a huge effect on your on your on your brain and keeping it okay. healthy. Social social activity. Um, so, yeah, brain training is not not the magic bullet. We already mentioned moving. Uh, uh, well, of course, we have Erik Scherder in the Netherlands who always uh, um, advocates that. And, and there's a lot of evidence to back that up. So that's definitely good. There's a limit. You, do, you don't have to like go all overboard and move, like exercise for, for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. But definitely a minimal amount. And, and that minimum already starts with like, you know, 10, 20 minutes of like walking, uh, which young people usually have no trouble uh, reaching. Uh, is already very good. Um, and also doing different things, uh, doing the same thing, whatever it is, all the time, is usually not good for your brain. Okay. Um, and is there also a way to create, maybe this is a bit fake, but is there a way to create a certain peace of mind by using brain tricks? Uh, is there a way to stimulate a feeling of happiness? For example, being in environments with a lot of light might stimulate more happy feelings. Is there something trick yeah. that we can apply to ourselves? Yeah, this, this actually is a, it's a simple question, but the answer is very complicated. <laughs> uh, light can be very beneficial to, to many people. A lot of people are very sensitive to light, uh, especially sunlight. Um, of course, sunlight is also healthy for your brain because it stimulates the generation of vitamin D. Um, and, there, and some people actually get clinically depressed if they don't have enough sunlight. Uh, mm -hmm. th that's a very specific type of depression that can actually be combated by either going to a sunny uh, land, a sunny, sunny country for a while, mm -hmm. or uh, having light therapy. Yeah, there's there are a lot of a lot of ongoing research into happiness. Actually, psychology has really gotten into happiness as a, as a field recently. And um, one of the things is that if you work, if you're too much focused on being happy actually makes you less happy. That was one of the conclusions. Uh, because then you certainly all, all the time set goals and then you're probably not meeting those goals. And you think, okay, now I should be feeling really happy, but I'm not. So something is wrong with me. And then that gets you into a, a downward spiral. So trying too hard to be happy all the time didn't really work for the people that they studied. Um, a lot of people who, who yeah, they uh, benefit from writing down every day what they're thankful for, so, mm -hmm. so they get a more positive focus. That has proven clinical benefits. Having said all that, the, the Netherlands is one of the happiest countries in the world, so that's that's good. 
<laughs> and that's probably not because of um, the legalization of marijuana or something like that, correct? Probably one of the things we don't we don't easily get worked up over stuff, right? And that's typical Dutch, like uh, just live Fair and enough, live. Yeah. So that kind of attitude kind of makes you happier, I think, stopping short of actually smoking marijuana, which uh, I'm not sure whether it makes you happier or not. You care less, that's that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, made me think of something else that was to me pretty funny in the in the book of uh, of Dick Swap. It was also about what you talked about going uh, to different countries for more life, help for some people, but also that some people uh, get more depressed during uh, winters because there's a lot of lo a loss of light. And it was called this disorder was called the seasonal affective disorder, and it was aptly named SAD. Oh, yeah. uh, the abbreviation, the, which I found good, pretty good, funny. Yeah. Um, but since we uh, already talked a bit about marijuana, uh, this is actually a topic I wanted to discuss a while, as well, was drugs. So for students, it is sadly not uncommon to use um, learning pills, as they're called. Uh, so for example, Concerta, Ritalin, and Adderall, um, usually used for people with uh, HDHD. Um, do you have any comments on this? Are there, does it have any negative effects? Is it a bad thing to do for people who don't have ADHD? Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a complex question. Uh, people with ADHD, of course, if they take Ritalin or Concerta, which is basically the same thing, it's a time-released version, uh, it really helps them focus. Um, and people who are, don't have ADHD but feel that they can use that extra focus, it will work. Um, of course, um, methamphetamine has has this uh, danger, and and you don't have that as much with with uh, Ritalin. Is that you get over sort of focused, and and can't really think clearly anymore. So that that's a big danger of that. But Ritalin, um, I don't think has very strong long term neg negative uh, effects if if you use it responsibly. Because uh, many children and, and, and also adults use it on a daily basis for years. And because um, you have loss of appetite, you sleep less well, things like that. So those are side effects that can also in turn uh, influence your memory negatively. Uh, but the learning itself and doing, the, doing the, the boring things that you just have to get through. Yeah, mm -hmm. that will be helped by that. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, Having said that, some of the drugs that we have studied in our group, uh, brain recognition group, not by me, but by my colleagues, for example, ecstasy seems very innocent because you, you know, have all these warm feelings and stuff. And But we had uh, a PhD done just about ecstasy and cognition. And they, they, the conclusion was that even after taking ecstasy once, uh, they could already distinguish between people who had taken it once in their lives and people who had never taken it. And they, they, they did significantly worse on certain cognitive tests. So it has a, a, a big and lasting effect on your uh, brain and on your cognition. It's subtle, but, but you can uh, quite easily show it uh, with cognitive tests. So, you, so that's something to keep in mind if you want to experiment with stuff. Some of it has side effects and that, that may last. Yeah. Okay, and do you know if these <clears throat> effects, for example, for ecstasy add up the more you use them? Because you said if you use it once, it already has an effect. Yeah, they, they also had um, like long-term users and they were a little bit worse than the one-time users, but but not 
that's like if you do it the one time you might as well do it like every week basically so it doesn't it does okay. not add up in that way no no. Good advice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the advice is, if you already done ecstasy, go ahead. <laughs> no. Um, so a lot of students obviously experiment with drugs. Um, a lot of students drink a lot of alcohol. I know a lot of friends of mine like to uh, drink some alcohol while watching uh, lectures, for example. The drugs of alcohol and marijuana, do you know if these have very strong effects on memory or they can actually help sometimes? I think because marijuana example, has, has a negative effect on memory. Alcohol is in, in principle a depressant, but it also has a, a short-term stimulating effect on the brain. However, one of the things, one of the big dangers is when you drink alcohol while studying materials, like watching a lecture, is the, is the thing called a state-dependent learning. Uh, because you put your brain in a physiological state which is affected by alcohol and that means that if you then have to do an exam and you're not drinking alcohol uh, you 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 basically uh, are in a different state physiologically speaking and then it's more difficult to access those memories extreme okay. examples are alcoholics who who hide their uh, alcohol while they're you know drunk basically and then when they're sober, they can't find it. And by the time they are drunk again, they remember all the the, the places where they put. Oh, they really? Put it. Yeah, that's a very very extreme example, obviously. Okay. Yeah. So so that's something to keep in mind. And of course, if you drink too much alcohol, uh, your memory gets worse. Okay. And the same for marijuana, I, I figure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't you know get... much about how. I don't have heard ever that marijuana enhances your memory. Um, but I'm not sure yeah. that it actually makes it worse. So that's just yeah, not... Yeah, because, because I've heard that marijuana can damage your memory in the long term. Um, but hearing you speak about creative creativity and uh, the benefit of that for your memory, marijuana is obviously uh, a drug that enhances your creative creativity. So maybe that also had an effect on, on, on your memory. Yeah, if you, if you don't memory. use it wisely, so to speak, your, your new uh, powers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine yeah. that, but I, I'm not sure all that much research has been done because marijuana in many countries is very difficult to uh, to to investigate for all kinds of yeah. uh, laws and regulations. I it's been done at our university, at the University of Amsterdam, but uh, what other place would it be tested? Um, okay, um, so nowadays um, it is very easy to get distracted. For example, your phone, I have get constant updates and constant messages from my phone from different apps. I see red dots around it to notify that I'm missing something. Uh, do you have any tips for not getting distracted? Yeah, well, I, I only know what I do myself. Uh, I, that, that was based on all kinds of advice I got from other sources. But for example, I have that with email. What I used to do is I would you know, work on something, say a paper or grading or preparing something and then whenever I got like bored I would check my email and then often there would be an interesting uh, something and I would like look at it or a little work thing or a question of a colleague and then I got like distracted by it and then I went back to work uh, but studies have shown that the switch cost going from uh, one thing to another and back are very high so so you lose a lot more time than you uh, think you are and so I, I've done uh, my um, 
sort of solution to that is, and, and a lot of people are doing that, is to click away my email. It sounds very simple. So I usually have, had a tab open and I would go mm -hmm. to that tab with one movement, but now it's like completely clicked away and I would have to first like, you know, go to my icon and, and get the whole page up. And then, uh, then it sort of like stops me from actually doing it. And I, I choose like two, maybe three moments on each day that I do all my email. Uh, and then, so whenever I get distracted and bored, I'll, I'll now do something else, <laughs> not email. Uh, and that other thing might be like going up and walking down and get a glass of water or coffee or something. That's good to have these little breaks, but it's not good to fill them with other tasks because then you okay. have to switch back and forth. Yeah. So that's that's okay. something you can do with your phone, but it's, it takes much more discipline to physically put your phone in a different room, I guess. Uh, but that yeah. would help because then you would okay. have to walk, get up and, and, the, and the movement of just like you know, clicking on your phone, which is already in your hand, of course, it's uh, very hard to control. Yeah. Okay, and now I would like to move to the last question already. Um, and that is, what do you think that is the most important thing that we should remember about memory? The most important thing is use creativity and, and space your learning sessions. Okay, the key, the two keys of uh, Professor Murder. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Professor Murder, for uh, for sharing your uh, knowledge on this topic. Um, I hope that all the students that will be listening to this podcast will find this helpful uh, for the coming uh, months and hopefully for even longer than that. Uh, I also want to thank the members of the Education Committee who organized this podcast. These are uh, Lotte Lavona, Marge Smith, and Lisa Zayens. And if you haven't already, check out our other podcast. Uh, we have a student talk where my friend Luc Genshara and I talk about happiness. We also have a teacher talk where I talk with Professor Eric Sliesser to figure out who this man behind the lectern really is. And we have an interview with Artie Browers about all the ins and outs of China. So once again, thank you, uh, Jaap Murren. Yeah, it's and, my uh, pleasure. Okay, thank you very much and uh, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.